Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We've been covering a lot of different topics over the last several weeks as I take a deep dive into different aspects of our culture. And and later this year, I've got a whole series of interviews that I'm going to be airing with a number of pro-life activists, with a number of philosophers. I'm actually working on a couple of different interview series so that we can really drill down into a couple of these topics because those of you following along with this podcast will know that we've covered a lot of material We've tried to keep you up to date on what's going on in the pro-life movement, not only in Canada and the United States, pardon me, but around the world. But there's also some subjects that I think deserve a special attention because there's little small things that happen in the culture that don't particularly seem worthy of a whole column or a whole essay, but at the same time are hugely significant. Now, one of those things... I think, is the shift in who our society honors, who our civilization honors. Because you can tell a lot about somebody, you can tell a lot about a community or a culture or a country by who it tries to honor. And I often think in this context of of the Bible verse, Esther 6, verse 6, and those of you uh, who know the story will recognize where the verse comes from, then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And essentially what this verse refers to is a place in the story where Haman, uh, who wants to kill all of the Jews, and particularly hates Mordecai, uh, the cousin of Esther, because Esther, uh, because Mordecai refuses to do him honor because he has reserved that only for God. Uh, but Mordecai has also been uh, an assistant in foiling a plot to assassinate uh, the king. And so the king asks Haman, what would you do? to somebody that the king wanted to honor. And Haman is very arrogant, and he assumes that's him, so he essentially describes a very public show um, of honor, a very public show of distinction, and the king tells Haman to go and do this to Mordecai, who is, of course, uh, the enemy that he hates the most. But what's really captured in that verse as well is that a civilization honors people, and shows honor to people for very specific reasons. And so, of course, in this specific case, uh, Mordecai was honored for foiling a plot to assassinate the king. And I've been working out of uh, the offices of the, of the European Conservative here in Brussels for the past month, and I have to walk every morning past a whole slew of statues, and they're pretty much everywhere. Now, in, in Canada, obviously, we have some statues. Uh, some some of our cenotaphs have statues. Uh, there's some great statues of, of, of the monarchs in various places. But by and large, uh, you have to go to Europe if you really want to see the sheer number of statues. I passed dozens of them on the way to work. There's diplomats and royals and artists and a whole bunch of doctors, actually. And all of these statues, uh, many of them long forgotten by those who are walking by them, are people that the culture wanted to honor in a particular way. And I've tried to read all the names and the descriptions at the base of each, and they're in French, so obviously I have trouble with some of them, but I can usually kind of figure out who they are, uh, why, why they have a statue, and you know which era they're from. And this is just, it's one of my favorite things about European cities, is the sort of forgotten man of marble and stone that stand over traffic, because they're a testament to what G.K. Chesterton uh, once said. He noted that our traditions are a democracy of the dead, meaning that the societies we live in 
are essentially uh, the collective wisdom of our an- our ancestors made manifest. And of course, our societies are also a, a, a sort of unspoken pact between the dead, the living, and the yet unborn. And these statues are a testament to that. And all of these people, of course, were deeply flawed, and all of these people had their own sins and their own faults. But at the same time, these were the men and the women who built our culture, who fought in our wars, um, who created our art and our culture, um, who spearheaded great advances in science and medicine, and so we put statues there to remind us of their accomplishments and to remind us of them. Now, anybody who's been watching the news over the last couple of years know that statues have been a pretty hot topic ever since that massive eruption of iconoclasm triggered by the George Floyd riots. You'll remember when George Floyd um, was killed by police in Minneapolis, these riots swept the United States and then very swiftly spread around the world, uh, even to countries that do not have uh, the uniquely American racial context. They unfolded again in Canada, they unfolded uh, in the United Kingdom and and the Netherlands, and you name it. There was massive riots all about a man who'd been murdered in the United States. And a huge part of these riots turned out to be statue smashing and tearing them down. And a lot of these scenes, I think, were, were kind of visceral for people to watch. And many people didn't particularly know why. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, why do I care so much about a statue that I never even looked at much walking down the street or I didn't even notice on my way to work? But I think there's a very good reason that a lot of people were sort of viscerally shaken by all these statues coming down, and that's because it was a direct attack on our traditions. It was a direct attack on our culture, and and I think more so it indicated a replacement uh, of our culture. It indicated a replacement of the founding fathers of our civilization. And keep in mind here that there was the occasional statue that got torn down that was of somebody who was sort of a genuinely repulsive character. So there was a statue of a of a slave trader in Bristol, the UK, that got torn down and chucked into the harbor. And I don't think that they should have torn it down. And I'm not, I don't actually support tearing down statues in general. At the same time, if you were going to chuck somebody's statue in the harbor, that's probably the guy you'd want to start with. But in Parliament Square in London, Winston Churchill's statue was also graffitied. This is the man who is probably the most responsible, if you had to pick one guy most responsible for the defeat of the Nazis in the Second World War, and certainly for keeping uh, England free of the Nazis, it would be Winston Churchill. But of course, now that it's 2023, you start to discern that he had views that weren't modern and weren't in keeping with our views. And so instead of being recognized as a, as a Nazi fighter, uh, Winston Churchill received plenty of graffiti. Same thing with Queen Victoria's statue in Leeds. Her statue was also toppled in front of the Manitoba legislature in Canada, as was the bronze statue of Queen Elizabeth II. And I'm, I'm not actually sure what the major beef with these monarchs are, except for any head of state now represents a past uh, filled with colonialism. Uh, and this is despite the fact that Queen Victoria, of course, uh, reigned over an empire that at that point had done more than any empire on earth to single-handedly root out slavery, not only abolishing the slave trade in 1807 and 1833 um, at enormous cost, slavery itself, pardon me, in 1833 at enormous cost um, to the the British government. In fact, the the debt that the English government took on to pay off um, the emancipation of the slaves didn't actually finish till 2005, 
which is just extraordinary to consider. But despite this, despite the fact that the British Navy was actually put out to sea specifically to track down slaving vessels and to set slaves free, none of that matters. The statues have to come down because our view of history is now that they were bad and we are good and thus we must purge all of their statues. And very confusingly... There was even statues of of people who did much to fight slavery that were toppled, mostly because I think a lot of these people, quite frankly, are are borderline illiterate morons. And this took place in Wisconsin, where a statue of anti-slavery activist Colonel Hans Christian Haig, who actually died fighting for the Union in the Civil War, and again, I repeat, was an abolitionist, was dragged away from the Statehouse in Wisconsin, the statue was decapitated, and then they chucked it into a lake. And this is happening all across the West, and what's interesting is it's still happening, because first you saw the statues of various Confederate generals get removed, that was a big debate, especially in the wake uh, of the alt-right's rise in 2015 and 2016, and the rise of the alt-right was a real thing, I covered it extensively at thebridgehead.ca, but there was a lot of people who warned, look, if you're going to start by taking down statues of, of, of Robert E. Lee, who after 1865 was in fact an American citizen and was valued and honored by a lot of people, if you're going to take down those statues, then eventually anybody who had past sins is going to be taken down as well. And that's what we're going to see. Um, we, we're seeing this already. So throughout the riots, we saw plenty of the statues of the U.S. founding fathers uh, get not only graffitied but vandalized. George Washington was frequently splashed with paint. And now they just took down a statue of Thomas Jefferson at the Capitol. Uh, Jefferson, of course, like several of the other um, founding fathers, was a slave owner, and as such, his statue has to go, despite the fact that he's the author of the Declaration of Independence. And I think that the the taking down of the Jefferson statue is just really an indication that those who wished to take down statues of people like Robert E. Lee uh, were, in fact, simply being... They weren't just focusing on Confederate generals, and they never had any intention of stopping. That This was um, an easy-to-justify cam- uh, start to a campaign to, to eradicate much of the memory of American history. And I didn't say much about uh, the Robert E. Lee statute at the time. I've long been fascinated with the American Civil War. My view is that we have too few statues, not too many, and that there's plenty of American heroes and plenty of African-American heroes who have few or no statues, and so that we should respond to an over-representation of one group by simply adding more. But this campaign is an attack on historical memory, and I think that there were some people who probably got that right before myself and other other conservatives did. So across the West, first we saw the statue smashing, now we see the uh, government um, o- overseeing removal of these things, and just like we see with the with with the vandalization of the Churchill statue and the decapitation of the abolitionist statue in Wisconsin, these historical illiterates decide they know just enough to topple and destroy our society's silent witnesses. And I do suspect one of the reasons they do this is because they cannot suppress a secret and, and very accurate suspicion that these stern watchers would have held them in in total contempt. And what's really interesting to me is that we hear so much um, from sort of the, the blue hard bar, the blue-haired barbarians at the gates 
about how they're ashamed of their ancestors, they're ashamed of everybody from George Washington to, to Thomas Jefferson to Winston Churchill to Queen Victoria, when the reality is that I do I do suspect that they hold a very sneaking suspicion that this, these stern-faced statues represent people who would be appalled um, by the behavior and the character of their descendants, would be appalled by the things that these people embrace, would be disgusted by the lifestyles advocated, and would be just simply be disgusted by their lifestyles in general. Sort of the cotterwalling, the selfishness, the embrace of bizarre identities, the total abandoning of not only moral boundaries, but biological boundaries. And so to some degree, the past is staring out at us every day. We just don't always notice it. And this needs to be removed by those who cannot handle the fact that the past is also standing in silent judgment over the future. Now, I don't want to get fully into the subject of statue smashing because I really only wanted to make that point to provide the context for my next point, which is that plenty has been written about the statue smashers. But I've been considering, especially on my morning walks, another point that I've taken notes on, actually, for a couple of years, trying to figure out how to make this point, which is that the tearing down of statues is very symbolic of decline, and it's a very, very powerful symbol of decline, which is why so many people wrote about the tearing down of the statues and the removal of the statues and why uh, photographs of, of somebody, you know, a statue of George Washington <clears throat> with red paint splashed alongside his head really did affect people in ways that I don't think they fully understood. But <clears throat> I think it's been much less commented on that it's conversely true that we can learn a lot about a society by who it chooses to honor. So yes, we're tearing down statues. Yes, we've been engaged in this fit of historical iconoclasm for a couple of decades now. We see virtually nobody um, who is go going to remain untainted once the progressives are through. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's name, the great emancipator, was even removed from, uh, from a school in the U.S., but who are we replacing these heroes with? Because all societies have to have heroes. We have to have founding fathers that we look up to. That's just the reality of things. But who are we replacing these people? And I noticed uh, earlier this month, and those of you who listen to this podcast or read my columns will know that um, the issue of assisted suicide is, is a subject that I'm very passionate about because I believe that assisted suicide in Canada in particular it poses the greatest threat to people suffering with mental illness that we've ever seen in this country, full stop. And that's one of the reasons why I was just so disgusted when Canadian columnist and assisted suicide enthusiast André-Pierre Picard, who was a vocal advocate of offering lethal injections to desperate Canadians suffering from mental illness, was recently or awarded the Order of Canada. Now, the Order of Canada is Canada's second most prestigious award, and Picard was given it, this award for his quote, I'm going to read directly from his, his, his Twitter account here, his dedication to advancing public health understanding and practices. And this is really insidious and complete garbage. Because just think about it, in 2022, euthanasia accounted for 4.1% of recorded Canadian deaths. That's over 13,200 people who died at the end of the, the needle. And Picard's analysis, which he wrote and stated on TV and radio, of that was, quote, we have a good maid system, it's served people well. That was his response. Now, by served, of course, he means gave them lethal injections. And by good, he means that this is being done effectively and on a mass scale. 
Euthanasia and assisted suicide is like the death rattle of a civilization in so many ways. And I'm incredibly grateful that earlier this week we heard from the Trudeau government that they're considering putting a pause on the expansion of euthanasia to mental illness uh, once again. They already did, they already put uh, a year pause on last year, rejected a cancellation bill put forward by a conservative member of parliament, Ed Fast. And now, after a, a joint parliamentary report, are once again saying it should be delayed. And the conservative legislators also submitted a, a dissenting report saying it should be cancelled entirely, and obviously they're completely right. But consider the horror stories we've been hearing out of the Canadian press, and now the international press, about Canada for years. Uh, people who have been euthanized for having a ringing in their ears, for having failing eyesight, who have already been euthanized for depression, including one man in BC who was euthanized after his family took him to the hospital for treatment, the mother who was euthanized without her two daughters finding out, who are desperately seeking legal recourse, the Canadian veterans who have been proactively offered euthanasia in lieu of treatment for PTSD, uh, the man in the London hospital who was told by an ethicist that he should consider euthanasia because his health care costs were somewhere north of $1,500. This is the system that some people, including um, Andre Pierre Picard, are boasting about. And they always act as if a handful of lives who have been lost, creating immense suffering amongst all of their family members are just part of it, just collateral damage. They'll say, well, like, yeah, there's been, you know, there's been off instances, but the system is working well. As if, you know, a few Canadians dying by lethal injection when they shouldn't have is just part of the price that we have to pay for having the world's most liberal euthanasia regime, especially when you look at what the Trudeau government's still planning to do. Nowhere in the world do we see a euthanasia regime as lax, as loose, as permissive as Canada's. And what do we give one of the guys who has been at the forefront of advocating for the system, a system that's turned Canada into a cautionary tale, a system that has had international headlines in very old and prestigious British publications asking why is Canada killing its poor? We give that guy the Order of Canada. It's just appalling, and it's such an indication of where our country is at. Who do we choose to honor? We choose to honor somebody who is spearheading who was advocating for a system by which the desperate and impoverished Canadians opt for state-sanctioned and state-facilitated suicide. Now, to be fair, the Order of Canada has been essentially meaningless since it was given to abortion pioneer Henry Morgenthaler in 2008 for his, quote, commitment to increased health care options for women, his determined efforts to influence Canadian public policy, and his leadership in humanist and civil liberties organizations. So just to translate that jargon for a minute, his commitment to increased health care was at his advocacy for legalizing abortion, which he essentially did in the R.V. Uh, Morgenthaler Supreme Court case in 1980 which threw out all of Canada's abortion laws, leaving us the only democracy on earth with no restrictions on abortion whatsoever. His determined efforts to influence public policy, in other words, Morgenthaler is actually being given the Order of Canada for fighting the government of Canada to change the laws of Canada that were at that time supported by a majority of Canadians really gives you an idea of how far the sexual revolutionaries have come. 
And then uh, his leadership in humanist organizations. Morgenthaler was an atheist who was part of a lot of atheist associations, and apparently that even gets you awarded now. So if you're an atheist abortionist who pushes to ensure that preborn children in the womb have no protection whatsoever, that qualifies you for one of the highest awards that Canada can give. Morgenthaler was instrumental in legalizing abortion, and he personally killed tens of thousands of unborn children, including, by his own admission, at least one of his own, while facilitating countless other abortions at his facilities across the country. And yeah, for those single-handed efforts at population reduction, we honor Henry Morgenthaler as a distinguished and a prestigious Canadian. We honor him. And it says a lot about Canada that Morgenthaler is the type of man that we want to honor, that Picard is the type of man that we want to honor. Or one of the other uh, other recently awarded activists would be Morgane Ogre, who is a trans-identifying man. Uh, he recently, and one of Canada's most notorious trans activists, by the way, anybody who's read my columns will know this is true, he recently received the Meritorious Service Medal from the Canadian Governor General, that happened in September, for being a, quote, champion of diversity and, quote, furthering the legal protections of transgender Canadians. Now, for those of you who don't remember, Ogre is the one who famously got the Vancouver Rape Relief Crisis Center, one of the country's oldest, stripped of its funding for refusing to admit gender-confused men. Essentially, a rape relief crisis center that had spent decades caring for victims of sexual abuse, he would rather have that shut down than... It's actually really, really difficult... Um, to figure out how to word how disgusting what this what this person did, because this this is a center that was serving women for decades, and Ogre's ultimatum was essentially accept biological men who identify as women or get shut down, and essentially we couldn't care less what happens to all of those victims. We couldn't care less. And when the crisis center was vandalized after this campaign to expose it for being transphobic. Ogre shrugged it off and just called it understandable, quote, blowback due to their anti-transgender position. Now, for that, for that, Ogre was given an award described by the Canadian government as recognizing, quote, great Canadians for exceptional deeds accomplished over a limited period of time that bring honor to our country. So Ogre gets the Vancouver Rape Relief Crisis Center defunded, spearheads essentially a smear campaign that results in the center being vandalized. And for that, um, the government, quote, recognizes that he brings honor to our country. That says a lot more about Canada than it does about Ogre. And if we go south of the border, America too, as you probably know, has begun to honor the sexual revolutionaries who did so much to transform their nation. In 2013, feminist leader and abortion activist Gloria Steinem, who, I kid you not, dedicated her memoir to the abortionist who killed her baby, received America's highest civilian honor, which in the American context would be the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her leadership in the, quote, woman's liberation movement. 
Again, when somebody gets the highest civilian honor for leading a movement that was directly targeted at the status quo of the time, that was directly targeted at laws that existed at the time, essentially, <clears throat> this is a declared recognition from the American elites and the American leadership that they reject the America that was, while embracing the America that is or is still becoming at the behest of leaders like Gloria Steinem. It wasn't just her, though. Ellen DeGeneres, the TV host, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016. What did she get it for? Coming out publicly as a lesbian on TV and thus advancing the LGBT cause. Again, it's just essentially considered now by the elites that if you are pushing the LGBT cause, you are now worthy of honor. This is the elites choosing <clears throat> a side, choosing what they call the, quote, right side of history, despite the fact that they have less than 20 years of history on their side, and we have thousands on ours. And in 2019, 2009, pardon me, Barack Obama even awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom to statutory rapist and LGBT activist Harmy Milk, posthumously for his, quote, visionary courage. As I've, I believe mentioned in a previous podcast, um, uh, Harvey Milk was a very famous gay politician in San Francisco. Um, he was also guilty of statutory rape. We know this uh, because it was recorded in the best-selling biography uh, written by Randy Schiltz, a well-known gay writer uh, in The Mayor of Castro Street. But that hasn't made any difference to people who are a fan of him. There are statues to Harvey Milk. And uh, in 2008, Sean Penn played Harvey Milk in a star-studded Hollywood biopic because at the end of the day, Harvey Milk is one of the new founding fathers of the United States. Washington is out. Harvey Milk is in. Now, the sexual revolution, of course... And I covered this in, in my podcast, taking a look at stories and storytellers. The sexual revolution has become the new founding story for many Western democracies. And this is really important to understand because the statue smashing, um, all of the wars over history, all of this really boils down to an argument about what our founding story is. And for those of us who are conservative, for those of us who are Christian, our founding stories are still the stories of those who built this civilization, who are by and large Christian. So this would be, you know, Plymouth Rock, the American Revolution, um, the traditional Canada that was, which was a profoundly religious nation until even a half century ago. This would be the, the nation that we embrace, that idealized the values that we embrace. But the sexual revolution, which began primarily in the 1960s, is the new founding story. And this means that the pantheon of old heroes has to be cleared for the icons of our new age. Now we see the term courage frequently applied to men who announce they are women or come out of the closet or live out their fetishes in public or women who champion feticide and childlessness. These are the kinds of people we honor. They're so brave and they're so courageous for coming out and telling us who they want to have sex with, for explaining to us that they are confused about their gender, um, for bravely living for themselves as if that took any bravery at all and wasn't just the human default condition. So their ancestors, though, our ancestors were flawed and afflicted by the evils of their age, as we are in ours. They are all consigned to the dustbin along with, it must be said, the civilization <clears throat> that they built and cherished. I think that their descendants are sick and tired of scuttling past stone monuments to their towering accomplishments, and thus are instead having temper tantrums, pulling them from their pedestals, and storming off breathless, angry, and yet still unsatiated. And so, again, to return to the question, 
to return to my uh, my my thesis statement at the beginning of this podcast, you can tell a lot about a civilization by who it honors. And that is the point that I think got missed in a lot of the commentary surrounding the statue wars, is yes, this was about iconoclasm, yes, this was about barbarianism, yes, this was about a rejection of our civilization, but who are those people being replaced with? That, I think, is as much of an interesting question as why the statues are being torn down in the first place. And these statues are being replaced with a very, very different breed of person. The people we are honoring are abortion pioneers and abortion activists and LGBT activists and trans-identifying men and women and people who flaunt their sexuality or their sexual proclivities in public. If you go to the <clears throat> Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg, which I did the day that it opened, you'll see a massive display that features abortion activists like Henry Morgenthaler and Gloria Steinem alongside civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or I should point out more specifically, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. They essentially lump all of these people into the same category. You can tell a lot about a civilization by whom it chooses to honor, and what that tells us about our society is pretty grim indeed. Thank you for listening this week. If you'd like to listen to more commentary like this and interviews that are upcoming, please head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find The Van Maren Show there, and you can subscribe to us wherever you get your content. Thanks so much.